Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 6 a.m. Central Standard Time. It is the 10th of December 2020. This is episode 337 of Bitcoin and it's brought to you by nobody, nobody, no, no advertisers. If you'd like to keep it that way, do me a favor and sign up on Sphinx chat. Uh, If you haven't gone, if you haven't figured out what Sphinx chat is or what the hell we're talking about, you can learn all about it by going to sphinx.chat on the interwebs that those that series of pipes and shit yeah go up go over there and start reading about it but essentially what it is it's it started out as a paid sort of like using the lightning network to pay to uh deliver you know deliver messages to other people that you can be in in contact with like any other kind of social media platform except there's payments involved and when they they hooked up with Adam Curry of uh, Podfather fame, uh, and he has been working furiously on Podcasting 2.0, which is also a very interesting project, but they kind of smashed into each other. And the guys over at Sphinx Chat designed a podcast player that is native inside Sphinx Chat. So not only can you send messages to other people using the Lightning Network, you can stream podcasts and while you're streaming podcast down, you can stream Satoshi's up at the same time on a per minute basis to the podcaster of whose podcast you happen to be listening to at that time. So while you're listening, you can say, hey, I want to listen to Bitcoin and and at the same time stream the guy three, five, 10, 100 Satoshi's per minute. I think the slider goes up to 100 Satoshi's per minute. But if you want to support this, uh, <clears throat> I can't think of a better way than to get on Sphinx app. It does take a little bit. It took me 15 minutes to spin up my entire thing. And what that included was I needed to rent a lightning node from them, which cost me about 79 cents at the time. It's 4,000 Satoshis for a month. And uh, when I got my lightning node, it gave me an invite code and I slipped that invite code into the Sphinx chat app because it, when you first put Sphinx chat on your phone, uh, it's going to ask you for an invite code. <clears throat> what it's looking for is a code that is given to you from either your own lightning node if you set it up properly or one of their nodes that they uh, allow you to rent on a per month basis for pretty damn cheap. Once it does that, the Sphinx Chat app connects to that Lightning node, and th- and that's you're you're pretty much live. The next step after that is to join a tribe. You can join my tribe, the Bitcoin and Podcast Tribe, and the best way to do that is on your phone. Okay, it doesn't work so well on desktop right now. Um, uh, maybe it does, and I'm just doing it wrong. But what I have found out where I can do it right and and not have any grief and and bitching and moaning is on my mobile phone, go to the website tribes.sphinx.chat and there you will find a list of all the tribes that are available to join. Some cost 10,000 Satoshis to join, some cost 50, some cost 10, some cost zero. Uh, It also costs you, you know, like uh, every time you want to send a message in that tribe, depending on who the tribe leader is and how they set up their tribe, it can cost, you know, a hundred, like, I don't know, a thousand Satoshis, uh, one Satoshi, zero Satoshis. It just depends. So the way that that works, though, is at, at tribes.sphinx.chat, where the list of tribes are, if you click on any one of them that you're interested in, it will expand and there will be a join button. 
<clears throat> there will also be a QR code, but like I said, some things are a little bit more weird than others. I have found that if I just press the join tab or the join button, it automatically brings up my Sphinx uh, chat app on my phone. And then there's a, like, I guess, you know, it's sort of like a second stage join. It's like, you really want to join? And it's like, yeah, join that tribe and boom, you're off to the races. If that tribe has a podcast like my tribe does, uh, if you wait a couple of seconds after the tribe opens up, <clears throat> you will see at the very bottom a bar appear that is a play bar, much like you would see in a in a podcast app. Go to the or if you tap on that bar, it will take you and basically like list all the podcasts or all the episodes from that podcast, and you can start playing them. Make sure that you set your Satoshi's bar to whatever it is that you feel is value for value transfer. So if you feel that listening to somebody's podcast is worth 100 Satoshi's a minute, set the bar all the way to the right. If you are a cheapskate like me, you might want to set it down a little lower because I get the feeling that we might be looking at <coughs> Satoshi dollar parity well within my lifetime. I'm just saying that that's all I'm saying. Anyway, <clears throat> If you do want to support this podcast and you don't want advertisers on here, do a brother a favor, man. Start streaming me sats while listening to the podcast. You know, that would be great, dude. Okay, now let's get on into the news that you can use. Fidelity Digital to hold Bitcoin as collateral for cash loans. You knew it was coming. It's been happening. But now we've got, you know, mainstream players who are like, I don't know if I want that house for collateral. I don't know if I want to hold an auto loan piece of paper for collateral. I just, you know, titles and shit. Screw it. Give me Bitcoin. That's what Fidelity Digital is doing. So on December the 9th, Matthew Leasing and Olga Karif is writing this one for Bloomberg says, <clears throat> Fidelity Digital Assets will allow its institutional customers to pledge Bitcoin as collateral against cash loans in a partnership with blockchain startup BlockFi. The unit of Boston-based asset manager Fidelity Investments will hold the digital asset and not make loans itself, Tom Jessup, president of Fidelity Digital Assets, said in an interview. The target is Bitcoin investors who want to turn their digital stash into cash without selling. And potential customers include hedge funds, crypto miners, and over-the-counter trading desks, Jessup said. The new service <clears throat> from Fidelity comes after Bitcoin beat its 2017 highest price earlier this month. Before retreating in recent days, the world's most valuable digital asset has risen 164% this year, hitting a high of $19,462 on December the 3rd. It traded Monday at about $18,880. Other cryptocurrencies like Ether and Litecoin, who cares? Holding Bitcoin to back loans is a foundational capability, Jessup said. As the markets grow, we'd expect that this becomes a fairly important part of the ecosystem, end quote. Fidelity said institutional investor interest in digital currencies is rising. A survey the asset manager conducted earlier this year found 36% of respondents held crypto in their portfolios. More than 6 out of 10 expressed interest in Bitcoin and other shitcoins. Of, up from 47% in a 2019 survey. Fidelity began a Bitcoin custody service last year, but this is the first time it's allowing the coins to be used as collateral. To get a loan, a Fidelity customer will have to have an account with BlockFi. Oh, bummer. I mean, I was, I'm, okay, yeah, that's kind of a bummer, dude. While Jessup said he envisions the loans to be longer than typical repo trade, they're still of a type, a tri-party agreement that's familiar to everyone on Wall Street. We want to develop a world-class brokerage capability for assets of all types, he said. Crypto is being accept accepted for more mainstream financial uses, uses, such as Visa credit cards that offer Bitcoin rewards and PayPal Holdings Incorporated, which allow customers to use the digital asset at the 26 million merchants on its network. BlockFi will risk manage the famous volatility of Bitcoin by offering cash worth 60% of a loan backed by the digital asset, said Chief Executive Officer Zach Prince. Quote, however, the program has room for client-level customization and may be adjusted to meet the needs of a large firm. Okay, so I guess that means that the firm can say, bullshit, I want more than 60%, and here's my credibility, and you're going to do it or I'm going to walk. I guess that's what it means. But here's the other interesting thing about it. The, you know, like if I take cash out of my bank, 
you know, cash that I've already paid taxes on and I use it to start a business directly, I'm going to be hosed on a tax liability, not for using, not for using the cash, I guess, but all the other like downstream stuff that comes from starting a business. I'm not going to get any, I'm not going to get any tax breaks on that shit. I'm going to have to report all that shit. Um, I mean, well, I'd have to report it anyway, but I'm going to get taxed on it in some way, shape, form, fashion, or another downstream. <clears throat> the thing with starting a business with a loan, there are no tax liabilities. As far as I can tell, I mean, if you make money on the business, yeah, you the business has incurred a tax liability, but when you're starting up and buying shit, uh, there's just nothing there. So it costs you a lot more to use your own cash than if you actually borrow cash or rent it. My problem here is that I'm, I, I got to say it, I'm not the biggest fan of BlockFi. I don't hate them like some of the other companies that I just can't stand in the space. But honestly, I, yeah. And I also don't really necessarily like the thought of putting my Bitcoin and handing over private keys and any any sort of my custody of Bitcoin to a third party because that's that's not the gig. However, Bitcoin is for enemies, and if somebody wants to do that, I can't stop them. And you know what? That part is the is the part about this that is good. <clears throat> that there are these services coming up, and I may not like them, but I got shit to say about it. That is more of the ethos of Bitcoin than, than we may want to believe. The fact that it's happening and we can't do a damn thing about it is sort of like how we snicker <clears throat> as Bitcoin happens and we find out government more and more sees that they can't do a damn thing about it. And Latin America is, or LATAM is a good example of some of the stuff that's going on here. <clears throat> Latin American crime cartels Turn to crypto to clean up their cash. Okay, this is part of the FUD. Just, I'm just saying, guys, this is part of the FUD. Uh, you'll notice, <clears throat> if unless you've been sleeping under a rock, that the uh, price of Bitcoin has dropped significantly over the last couple of days. And it's because of an orchestrated amount of FUD that's coming out. And it's not like we haven't seen it before, but this is the same the same thing. So this is Reuters, okay? Thompson Reuters is it has this out on Tuesday, December the 8th, and says, <clears throat> In April 2019, Mexican police arrested suspected human trafficker Ignacio Santoyo in a plush area of the Caribbean resort of Playa del Carmen after linking him to a prostitution racket extending across Latin America. Yet, <clears throat> it was not the 2000 women Santoyo is allegedly to have blackmailed and sexually exploited that ultimately led to his capture, but the Bitcoin he is suspected of using to help launder the proceeds of his operations. The cryptocurrency is emerging as a new front in Latin America's struggle against gangs battling for control of vast criminal markets for sex, drugs, guns, and people. According to law enforcement authorities, quote, there's a transition to committing crimes in cyberspace like acquiring cryptocurrencies to launder money, and the pandemic is accelerating it, said Santiago Nieto, head of the Mexican Finance Ministry's Financial Intelligence Unit. Neither Santoyo, who is in custody, nor lawyers representing him could be reached for comment, and they have not commented publicly on the case in the past. The Mexican Attorney General's office declined to comment while the case remained open. Santoyo's arrest represented an early success for a new law in Mexico that seeks to tackle the intractable problem of how law agencies can track the use of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies designed to anonymize users. Bitcoin was not designed to anonymize users, people. This is the narrative. This and are they getting it wrong on purpose or are they getting it wrong because of ignorance? If it's the latter, then it's up to us to educate. If it's the former, then it's up to us to fight this shit tooth and nail, okay? Because it's bullshit. <clears throat> the law requires all registered cryptocurrency trading platforms to report transfers above 2830 US dollars. It was passed in 2018, but it took months to implement the system which is still a work in progress. Bitcoin's use to launder money is particularly increasing among drug gangs, such as the Jalisco New Generation Cartel and the Sinaloa Cartel of captured kingpin Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, U.S. and Mexican authorities say. 
president or the Mexican president <clears throat> Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has faced record levels of gang-fueled violence during his first two years in office, and the prospect of cartels hiding their profits in lightly regulated spaces is of a major concern. Okay, that's all we really need to do with this particular, because this is actually a much longer article. <clears throat> the rest of it basically kind of outlines just drug use and gangs, and yeah, it just goes over and over and over and over again about how Bitcoin bad because it helps bad people do bad things. This is baby, I mean, this is infantile level FUD, right? This shit's been with us for years and it's like they can't come up with anything new. I, you know, honestly, if, if there was such a thing as superheroes and supervillains, I'm sure that, you know, they, there would be news stories about how Lex Luthor is using Bitcoin to screw over Batman and Superman and all the rest of the crew. I get, I guarantee you that's exactly how it would be. These guys are so desperate that they are, they're having to take away their news writers from writing about Hunter Biden, uh, uh, Joe Biden, uh, Trump, and all the, the shit going on with the election. They're literally, ha oh, and climate, by the way. They're having to steal those people and put them into the Bitcoin, the uh, anti-Bitcoin camp. So this is a dedicated crew of people who have been tasked with doing this, all right? <clears throat> and we have shit like this. Hackers ransom 85,000 SQL databases for Bitcoin. Shara Malwa is going to tell us about it from Decrypt.co. He's writing this one on the 10th, which is today. A relatively new, oh, it's new. It's a relatively new cyber attack. These hackers steal entire databases and demand a Bitcoin ransom from their owners, as per a report today by security publication ZDNet, over 85,000 accounts have been reportedly affected so far. SQL, short for Structured Query Language, is a widely used computer language used to access, manage, and change data on servers or cloud systems. It has been heralded in the developer community for being faster, easier to learn, and highly interactive among various different data sets. Such advantages make SQL databases a very popular tool around the world and also a ripe target for attack. Security analysts suggest these hackers have been active since the start of 2020, with the extent of such attacks increasing in the past months. The attacks these hackers fraudulently gain access to an SQL database, download all the data, delete the data on the original server, and proceed to leave a ransom note for owners to retrieve their database. They even leave a time lock to coerce victims to quickly make payments. If, quote, if we don't receive your payment in the next nine days, we will sell your database to the highest bidder or use them otherwise, reads one such ransom note. Initially, the note directs the victims to the attacker's email. However, as the attackers or as the attacks grew, the operation was automated, meaning the data released automatically on payment and made accessible via a website on the dark web. Hackers are said to demand approximately $550 US worth of Bitcoin for each affected database. Exchange rate fluctuations mean, means the number of Bitcoin demanded may change every day. It can be drastically higher or lower today compared to last week. Oh, see, you got you to gotta slip the volatility narrative in there a little bit. But security analysts state the actual dollar amount remains the same. Oh, because that's, yeah, the, the dollar state. God, uh, come on, D, come on, Shara. Decrypt, guys, you know better than this. Bitcoin ransom attacks have risen in tandem with the rise of the crypto market this year, with attackers covering a large variety of victims and methods such as Pakistani electricity firms, Argentinian borders, and even using Dogecoin wallets to ply their trade and eke out some Bitcoin. And with the use of technology increasing each year, the attacks only are expected to continue. I don't know where they're getting off that this is a new thing. Databases have been being seized for a long time asking for ransom and before uh, before bitcoin came around this shit was still going on bitcoin didn't cause this i i know you guys know that but it, it just again 
I'm seeing a spun up narrative and it's seeping its way into even places like decrypt, which has been becoming more and more shit coinery over the, the last few months. But be that as it may, let's stay in Latin American, <clears throat> Latin America for a little while, because what, you know, it's kind of pretty. Coinbase-backed Bitso raises $62 million to expand crypto footprint in Brazil. December the 9th, for Coindesk, Ian Allison writes, Announced Wednesday, Mexico City-based Bitso Series B also heralded the first investment in crypto by renowned fintech VC firms QED Investors and Kasich Ventures, which led the fundraise. Also involved in the round were existing shareholders Coinbase Ventures and Pantera Capital. Nigel Morris, co-founder and managing partner of QED Investors, and Nicholas Zizki, co-founder and managing partner at Cossack Ventures, are joining the board of Bitso. Aww. Quote, we have been talking to QED and Cossack for a really long time and have been interested in crypto, but hadn't pulled the trigger until now, said Daniel Vogel, CEO and co-founder of Bitso. I think the conviction from them is because we are really focused on making this technology accessible to the people of Latin America. The specter of deflationary currencies has driven Bitso user numbers to over a million in a crypto market share of 97% in Mexico and 77% in Argentina, Vogel said. A steady expansion of real-world use cases is behind the VC interest, he said, such as remittances, where crypto enjoys a share of the $36 billion a year U.S.-Mexico corridor. Quote, in the case of the U.S.-Mexico remittances, Bitso has processed over a billion dollars worth of them, said Vogel. Quote, that's exciting because it's the technology being put to use for the benefit of consumers more than just speculation. Bitso raised a previously undisclosed $15 million Series A round in October of 2019, Vogel said, and currently employs about 200 staff. The firm will use a portion of the latest fundraise to build out a Brazil-based operation, which was given a toehold launch earlier this year. Quote, Brazil is probably the most exciting place to be building out how we envision crypto-powered financial products for the end consumer. So there's going to be very strong commitment from Bitso in Brazil, where we aim to triple the size of the team over the next 12 months. Okay, well, that's good. So if you need a if you're wanting to get out of whatever country you're in and live in Latin America, there may be a job for you down there at Bitso. What do I think about it? I don't know. Like I said, Bitcoin is for enemies. This entire space is for your enemies. I can't do anything about it. And thank God, because if I could do something about it and I started shutting down shit, uh, what kind of signal would that send? Honestly, I mean, I get <clears throat> that sometimes we can get all pissy about shit coinery and all manner of, you know, vague people that are offering quote-unquote loans and the whole DeFi thing. But if you could shut it down, ask yourself this question. If you're into Bitcoin and you think it is the future like most of us do, uh, if you had the power, would you shut the rest of the shit down? If you did, if you said yes to that question... How could you be assured that it wouldn't affect what people read about Bitcoin? I mean, like read as in its future, read, you know, reading Bitcoin's future. How would that not screw that all up? See, that's, see, that's the real rub about all this shit. It's, I mean, you can, ex, 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 you can extend that line of thinking to something like the First and Second Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. Hey, I might not like Nazis. I, I Well, actually, I, I don't like Nazis. I, I don't like it when they march, but they have a right to march. It's guaranteed. Free speech. First Amendment. Constitution of the United States. You may hate it. But see, nobody's stopping you to go to that march and yell at them because that's your free speech too. If you knock down one side, don't you knock down all sides? Same thing with Second Amendment. Only police should have, you know, have firearms. Well, that's a direct violation of the Second Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. You may hate guns. You may think that nobody but police gets to get guns. But guess what happens? You knock down the Second Amendment, you can knock down the First Amendment. You can knock down all ten amendments of the Bill of Rights, which was absolutely critical for the signing of the Constitution of the United States. I mean, especially like, you know, we get into the 10th Amendment, states' rights. If it's not fucking explicitly lined out in the body of the Constitution or the first nine amendments, then it is not a power of the United States government and then falls to the state to interpret. 
that's under fire if you screw over the Second Amendment. I'm just saying, you may not like something, but you got to deal with it. But that doesn't ex- that doesn't exclude you having a right to bitch about it and make sure that people know better. That's why I always say this is why I Bitcoin, or this is why I'll get it, you know I'll go head to head with Eric Voorhees and call him a straight up shit coiner. I can do that. I think he's shit coinery. But if I had the ability and the power to strike him down, like you know, like his, smote his ruin on the side of the mountain, I wouldn't. Because it would screw everything else up. And I know that's hard. That's really hard to take. I I get it. We're going to have to deal with all this bullshit. We're going to have to deal with FUD. We're going to have to deal with uh, shit coinery. We're going to have to deal with Eric Voorhees running around saying that Filecoin has performed better than than Bitcoin since its ICO, which makes absolutely no sense. But he did say that. He said that yesterday a couple of times. It was kind of sickening, honestly. All right. Well, you know, with all that said, let's continue to stay in LATAM. I'm really bullish on Latin America, by the way, for Bitcoin adoption. I'm also bullish on Africa. But for some reason or another, I'm actually more bullish on Latin America. I think Latin America actually gets it faster than a lot of places on the planet. And they're just so they're just so well positioned because... Even though there's a lot of Latin America that is poor, they're not as poor as a shit ton of Africa, right? They actually have better access to financial tools and services than most of Africa. I get the feeling that we're going to see explosions out of uh, South and Central America. I I, I, Honestly, this is one of my favorite places to watch. Because of shit like this, Venezuela ramps up Bitcoin payments for imports from Iran and Turkey. Joshua Mapperson, writing for Cointelegraph.com sometime early this morning, says uh, Venezuela President Nicolas Maduro claims that the country will use all the cryptocurrencies in the world to bypass U.S. sanctions. See? Bitcoin is for enemies. And so is your shitcoin. According to an investigative report from runrun.es, Venezuela intends to increase its use of Bitcoin to pay for imports to bypass financial sanctions imposed by the United States. Runrun.es, which was founded by Venezuelan investigative journalist Nelson Bocaranda, cited anonymous sources from the country's central bank who claimed that, quote, payments to companies from allied countries such as Iran and Turkey have been made using Bitcoin. Thank you. It is unclear what these imports consist of. However, Turkey and Iran currently provide the country food and fuel in exchange for gold. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro government Nicolas Maduro's government has promoted its state-issued purportedly oil-backed petro cryptocurrency as a means of exchange both internationally and domestically since launching in 2018. However, Poor adoption of the shitcoin has forced the regime to explore other crypto assets, including Bitcoin and, God forbid, Ethereum. Maduro began to publicly threaten the use of Bitcoin and other crypto assets as a means to bypass sanctions in September, proclaiming his administration would soon, quote, use all the cryptocurrencies, public, state, and private, for internal and external trade. On October the 8th, Venezuela's National Assembly passed the anti-blockade law granting further powers to circumvent uh, sanctions imposed on the country, including to authorize the creation or use of any crypto asset as a monetary instrument. Holy shit, dude. I'm going to stop. We got to pause and read that one again. On October the 8th, Venezuela's National Assembly passed the anti-blockade law granting further executive powers to circumvent sanctions imposed on the country, including the authorization to, and creation or use of any crypto asset as a monetary instrument. They're basically pulling out all the stops. I'm telling you, man, Latin America, you got you got to keep your eye on these people, dude. Whether you like Maduro or not, see, again, Bitcoin is for enemies. I don't like Nicolas Maduro. I think he, dude's a scumbag. But he doesn't represent Venezuela. I mean, he does. Okay, that's a stupid thing to say. He does. He doesn't. There's a lot, most of the people in Venezuela really don't like this guy. It's clear he steals elections, okay? It's, it's clear that he does things to his people that are, are not good. 
the people of Venezuela do need help. Maduro's an asshole, but the fact that he's like just saying, fuck you, I'm using whatever I have in my bag of tricks to give you the finger. You, I, I got to admit, man, I, I, I have to appreciate the brass balls on this dude. I, I just, I, I have to, because the Venezuelan government established its digital assets production center, a Bitcoin mining warehouse in November as the country increased its reliance on cryptocurrencies. See what I'm saying here? Last week, the Venezuelan government launched its cryptocurrency exchange backed by the National Cryptoactive Superintendency. Whoa. To allow citizens to exchange boulevards for Bitcoin. Iran has also put into action a law to use Bitcoin to pay for imports in an effort to reduce pressure on the country's already fragile economy. I'm telling you, man, Latin America is just going to blow up. It's going to blow up so hard it's not even funny. So, hey, you know what? We should probably stop here and run the numbers. CNBC, futures and commodities, oil up. Wow. Okay. It's up a point and a half for, for West Texas. It's also up a point and a half for Brent North Sea. Natural gas, ooh, God, it went all the way down to $2.46 for a thousand cubic feet, but is that number is actually representing a point, not point, uh, 0.9% increase. Gold is up, meh, it's going to come in at 1840 bucks. Silver is down. Yeah, all the metals. Basically, the only thing that's doing anything is palladium. It's up almost a point. Uh, index futures, we got the, good Lord, it's just meh across the board. Dow futures up 0 0.03. S&P futures down 0.13. NASDAQ is down almost a half a point. S&P mini is down negligibly. All right, so that's the futures. Now there's going to be a new future. I tweeted this out yesterday or the day before i can't remember we need to keep a, uh, an eye on this uh nasdaq velez california water index futures on the cme group this is actually being taken directly from uh, cmegroup.com which is uh the commodities uh, sorry the the cme's website and it's talking directly about this velez california water index future and it says, a clear solution to water price risk management is now available. Uh, a new derivative solution to hedge water price exposure. The NASDAQ Velez California Water Index Futures can help you manage the price risk associated with the scarcity of water at the largest water market in the United States. The NQH2O Index, which reflects water prices, um, tracks the price of water rights, leases, and sales transactions across the five largest and most actively traded regions in California, water entitlement transactions from the surface water market and four adjudicated groundwater basins. That's important to note. They're talking also about groundwater. They ain't talking about surface rights. They're talking about all the rights. So, Four adjudicated groundwater basins include the Central Basin, the Chino Basin, the Main San, San, San Gabriel Basin, and the Mojave Basin, Alto Sub Area, are also included in the index. The value of the index reflects the volume-weighted average price of water at the source, excluding conveyance cost and water losses in the underlying market after adjusting for idiosyncratic pricing factors specific to each of the eligible markets and transaction types, NQH2O is valued in U.S. dollars per acre foot, the volume of water required to cover one acre of land to a depth of one foot, and one acre of land is 43,560 square feet. But the equivalent is that one acre foot is 325,851 gallons of water. Last price that I heard was 460, right, like somewhere around 460 bucks for an acre foot contract. I may be wrong, but look, guys, I don't know if you remember Enron. You need to look into Enron to understand what the hell is going to happen with water futures. 
If you do not think that the same thing is going to happen to water futures that happened with energy futures out of Enron, then you are, you're, you're fooling yourself. So I'm not happy that CME Group is listing this shit. I'm not a Californian. And I'm not a fan of California as a state because of their legislature. But again, most, you know, people are different than their state or their, their, the, the people that run the show. Um, and water is probably, well, water is the most important commodity on the face of the planet. You know, it's, we're real lucky that we even have liquid water on this planet. And all life on this planet is uh, connected directly to being able to remain hydrated, including plants, animals, people, monkeys, snakes, you, you name it, dude, even insects. Having this as a tradable uh, futures derivative product is probably the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. So be aware, if you're a listener in California, dude, my heart goes out for you because I, I, know, what that, I know what this means. You're going to pay a shit ton of money for water in the future. I think it's going to be stable for the first few weeks. I think the narrative that they're going to spin up around it is that this is going to help farmers. And they're going to prove that in the first few weeks, maybe the first few months. But then it's going to go to hell in a handbasket and burn there, okay? Let's talk about real money. $18,251 is the price that I'm getting on Bitcoin right now. That is not the low. I have a low at GDAX, which is coming in at 18,243. And I got a high over at Bit Asset, 18,277. Not a whole lot of playroom right there, but we've topped out on transactions for the day. Holy shit. 300,349 300, transactions performed in the last 24 hours. That's 12,500 transactions on average every hour. Just over 2 million BTC have been sent in that 24 hours. And that means about 85,000 BTC are being sent every hour on the hour on average. The average transaction value is 6.77 BTC. The median transaction value is 0.035 BTC, 635 bucks. I'm going to pause. Months ago, I was happy with $300 as the average transaction or the median transaction value, 300 bucks. It would swing 250, 350. Sometimes it'd go to 425, but not very often. I, it seems clear <clears throat> to me that I'm going to have to leave that number behind as my, my nominal number, and I'm going to have to double it at minimum. Where 600 will now be what I expect to see on median transaction value, which means that the median, uh, in my opinion, it just means that more and more people are using Bitcoin on a daily basis. That, that's what this means to me. Continuing, block times are high at right around 11 minutes. We have 0.5 BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis, 70 BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. We have had a 1% drop in hash rate, but we are still down all the way to 129.5 exahashes per second. Dogecoin is getting and staying hammered, 0 0.0031. Uh, what does that mean? I think it means that people are digging into their bags that they haven't really touched in years to get rid of Dogecoin. I like Dogecoin. I don't use it. I don't like it for use. I would never ex tell you to go buy it because it is a shit coin. Okay. It's hundred percent shit coin. It just, it's got some sentimental value for me. That's the only reason I keep my bag around, but it looks to me that you got a major sell-off going on in the Doge market. You got 40,000 transactions in the last 24 hours, and that beats Ethereum Classic, and it certainly beats Bcash. Holy shit. Bcash is at 16,000 transactions. And somehow or another, Roger still feels okay about getting onto Twitter and snapping uh, pictures of himself in Antigua buying gas with his shitcoin. I'm not sure why. Well, you know what? Screw him. Clark Booty, what do you got to say? 32,874 transactions. That's what he's got to say. And it's going to take 27 blocks to clear all that shit. We've got a price. He's got a price of 18,228. And the money supply, when he runs the numbers, comes out to 18,567,106.65 BTC. You can get, ooh, wow, we've dropped down below 10 ounces of gold for per Bitcoin. We're only capturing 2.84% of that market. And the market capitalization of all Bitcoin has gone down to $338.4 billion. 
we have 1,069 Bitcoin in the Lightning Network. That capacity value has now dropped to sub 20 million, all the way down to 19.5 million, but it's still running over 7,895 nodes, representing 36,229 channels. And the percentage of the Tor capacity of the Lightning Network is also holding right at 51.8%. And there is still 553.57 BTC in the Tor side of the network. That's going to do it for Vitals. All right, part two of the news you can use is going to start out with a long one, but we got to do it. Preston J. Byrne is going to tell us about this Stable Act bullshit. Um, that's part of the that's part of the coordinated FUD. All right, the Stable Act announcement on I think it was December the third, with one of the squad members, Rashida Talita or whatever her name is, and then all of a sudden, right after that was announced, uh, Twitter went ape shit and then the news stories started dropping left and right and then right on cue bitcoin price starts to drop and drops about a thousand points oh actually a little bit more we were up i think we were up at 19.4 on december the third or something like that and then rashida talita drops her little bomber and then all of a sudden it has the desired effect of if you've been in the space for a while the the obvious effect of not doing much if you're new to the space, it's like, oh my God, my hair's on fire. We're all going to die. Oh no. Well, Coindesk and Preston J. Byrne is going to outline what go, what's going on here. The, the title is, and, and don't freak, okay? Would the Stable Act make running an Ethereum node illegal? If you were following the tweet thread, <clears throat> this is where we all found out about Rohan Gray. If you don't know who he is, you probably don't need to. It's not going to be important, but that's why they're talking about an Ethereum node. However, in my opinion, it kind of like means that are, are you supporting any one of these networks in any way, shape, form, or fashion? This may apply to you. I don't think this shit's got a hope in hell of passing, but everybody's freaked out about it, so let's get into it. Last week, Congresswoman and squad member Rashida Taliba, actually it's Tlaib or something like that, from Michigan sent crypto Twitter into a tizzy with the following proposal. And here's her tweet, and I quote, preventing cryptocurrency providers from repeating the crimes against low and moderate income residents of color traditional big banks have is critically important. That's why I'm proud to introduce the Stable Act with uh, Chewy Garcia and Stephen Lynch. Now, that's the tweet. That was, uh, a, that was mid-afternoon for me on December the 2nd. And then everything went weird. The bill's academic slash think tank proponents followed up with posts such as this. Nathan Tankus, at Nathan Tankus, all one word, says, Crypto Twitter is fired up about the Stable Act. They really don't like being responsible for trying to synthesize a bank deposit or providing payments infrastructure for it. We now know how big counterfeiters would defend themselves if physical counterfeiting legislation came now. What are you talking about, Nathan? Physical counterfeiting legislation is has been in place for decades. Okay. So now here's the Rohan Gray part of the, the story. Uh, Rohan Gray is being retweeted by Nathan Tankus in this bullshit. And Rohan Gray's tweet is, I'm thrilled to share the announcement of the new stablecoin tethering and bank licensing enforcement known as the Stable Act. Uh, co-sponsored by Chewy uh, Garcia or whatever, and Chair of House Financial Services Committee, FinTech Task Force Representative Lynch. All right, so Rohan Gray got in on on this on this FUD. There's a lot of un to unpack here, and a lot of crossed wires, mostly due to I suspect the fact that the proponents of the bill are MMT theorists and not engineers. While they may have fairly elaborate theories about what function cryptocurrency serves, they may have a somewhat looser grip on how the cryptocurrency actually works. So number one, what the bill does. <clears throat> the bill outlaws the issuance of a stable coin otherwise than by an insured depository institution that is a member of the Federal Reserve System, i.e. a bank. Protect our brethren 
at all costs is what that means. The bill bans the issuance of stable coins, provisions of stable coin related services, or otherwise engaging in any stable coin related commercial activity, including activity involving stable coins issued by other persons without obtaining written approval in advance from the appropriate federal banking agency. Again, protect our brethren. Three, the bill creates a requirement for pre-approval, among other things, for otherwise engaging in any stable coin related commercial activity. And Preston says it's a swing and a miss. Number one, the largest stable coins available in the marketplace, which shall remain nameless for the purposes of this blog post, have a list of compliance issues a mile long already. Adding another requirement doesn't answer the question of how we got non-compliant stable coins to adhere to the rules that currently exist. Number two, one of the stated purposes of this bill is to protect underserved communities from being discriminated against by stablecoin issuers. To this, I would reply that any stablecoin issuer worth doing business with will operate in New York State and need to comply with the provisions of the New York Human Rights Law, which prohibits discrimination for the disabled. I also note that the Second Circuit Federal Court thinks that under Title III of the Americans with Disabilities Act, there is no requirement for a public accommodation to have a physical location, so that aspect of equal access might also be covered by New York-based stablecoin providers. Additionally, given the regulatory problem with some existing stablecoins, and in particular their role as dollar liquidity providers for offshore exchanges with lax know-your-customer enforcement, that can't get banking access, it is likely those who would access stablecoin markets don't need to be protected from denial of access to stablecoins, but rather they need to be protected from most of the stablecoins they are likely to encounter in the wild, i.e. shitcoins. Quote, or rat quote, good God. Third, (laughs) number three, the plain text of the bill presents the bizarre possibility, one which is apparently intended by the drafters that node operation in any unlicensed chain that supports any stablecoin contracts would be unlawful and pursuant to 12 U.S. Code 1833A would be subject to fines of up to $1 million. Criminal penalties might also be possible. The rest of this post deals with this point. Okay, so this is the criminal penalties on 12 U.S. Code 1833A with fines of up to a million dollars. Lawyers have these little critters called canyons of statutory construction we use to interpret laws. For example, in England, they have something called the Golden Rule, which basically means that when trying to understand what the law calls for, you give the statute its plain and ordinary meaning unless doing so would render the statute absurd. In the alternative, there is an approach called the purposive approach, which is generally used to interpret indirectly effective European Union law where interpretation of the rule is driven by the purpose for which the statute is drafted. In America, by contrast, you may have heard of textualism, originalism, or the living constitution approach in recent U.S. Supreme Court hearings. It's the same game. Choosing which rules we use to understand the language. I propose one for cryptocurrency. I call it the Ethereum rule. And it holds that, quote, a law is to be given its plain and ordinary meaning unless it would require Ethereum as it exists in 2020 to apply for a license, in which case the law is absurd. This bill appears to require just that. Although the definition of stablecoin in the act seems to exclude cryptocurrencies like Ethereum, well, actually Ether, whatever, the issue isn't that the definition is overbroad, but that the bill seeks to force anyone engaging with stablecoins to do so under the aegis of the Federal Reserve System. Just read the plain language, quote, it shall be unlawful for any person to otherwise engage in any stablecoin-related commercial activity, including activity involving stablecoins issued by other persons without obtaining written approval in advance from the appropriate federal banking agency, (gasps) end quote. This doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room. Any means any, and any stablecoin-related commercial activity is a broad brush when we consider that any user of any smart contract blockchain will be verifying stablecoin transactions to some extent. Lest we think we're misreading the proposal, its own proponents publicly agree with the interpretation. Uh, Scott Lewis, that's Scott underscore L-E-W underscore I-S, says on Twitter, Key advocate of the Stable Act believes that the Ethereum protocol will get a banking license in order to comply with his law. 
a protocol cannot apply for a banking license. And he stamped that idiot Nathan Tankus's tweet. <laughs> to this, I respond with the Ethereum rule of statutory construction. Ethereum has no central owners. That's bullshit, Preston. That's bullshit and you know it. Vitalik. <laughs> Vitalik, man. Ethereum has no central owners, forks regularly, and is currently regulated as a commodity. If your law requires that kind of system to get a bank charter, not only will the law fail to effectively control the blockchain, but the regulators tasked with enforcing it will have difficulty finding someone withstanding to sign the application. The Stable Act says that blockchain users will be permitted to transact if only they would first achieve the impossible. This is an absurd state of affairs and a strong indication that, as written, the Stable Act would not make a good law. Of course, there is zero chance the Stable Act is going to become law during this Congress. However, coin people, and Ethereum people in particular, have been asking the question, well, what if it did? The answer is not straightforward. Peter Van Valkenburg over at Coin Center says the prohibition on stablecoin-related commercial activity hands down applies to node operators or anyone running an Ethereum client. Quote, the logical consequence of the bill is that if any person is running software that validates DAI or any other stablecoin smart contracts, they will themselves be violating the law unless they are a chartered bank. Come find me. Although, I don't, don't get me wrong, I have zero chance of running an Ethereum node. I don't even want to, but even if I did, it's impossible. You can't do it by yourself. You have, never mind, don't worry about it. Though, though a reasonable conclusion on a balance likely the correct one, it is not a foregone one since the current language of the Stable Act being both overbroad and imprecise leaves plenty of scope to poke holes in it. For example, it is not clear whether operating a node gratis, as many full nodes do, count as stablecoin-related commercial activity if done on a non-commercial basis. Seeing as nodes are not ordinarily compensated, it is certainly conceivable there will be situations where node operation is sub-commercial, if not non-commercial. Research would be required to find the answer here. I wouldn't trust the outcome of that research, by the way. Additionally, it is not immediately apparent to me that running a full node is stablecoin-related commercial activity, given that many, if not most, cryptocurrency transactions don't have a stablecoin component. The statute's lack of specificity narrows its application. If the statute said any commercial activity related to or any communication which may facilitate any stablecoin transaction, well, that would be one thing. But that's not what the language says. Properly understood, Ethereum is a rail, and just as we don't refer to the act of driving a call as be or driving a car as being quote jogging related, just because cars and joggers use the same roads. We shouldn't refer to the act of running a node as a stablecoin related just, be coin, just because stablecoin transactions are broadcast alongside each, uh, all, sorry, broadcast alongside all other transactions via dev P2P. Uh, again, most research or more research would be needed to see whether a court would agree with that interpretation. But there is another matter. In my view, the operator of a cryptocurrency node is capable of being a provider of an interactive computer service under a legislative provision known as Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is 47 U.S. Code 230C1, if you're interested. This law states in relevant part that providers of interactive computer services properly inform information, sorry, properly, quote, information content providers, end quote, are not treated as the publisher or speaker of and therefore have no liability for content which third parties submit to their servers subject to certain limited exceptions. Coin Center has called in the past for a node operation safe harbor similar to Section 230. Since the blockchain is really little more than a published, cryptographically verifiable feed of transactions that have been authorized by the Bitcoin network and other blockchains, the same for their corresponding native asset, I tend to think it's more likely that not a blockchain application falls within the confines of Section 230. I freely admit that whether a node operator qualifies for the exemption is an open question. The law defines an information content provider as a system provider that provides or enables computer access by multiple users to a computer server. I'd have Sorry, I'd have to do a little research to see if there are any precedents dealing with the question of what a server constitutes for this purpose. But at least at first glance, there is an argument to be made that operating a full node on a blockchain 
which in its essence is a distributed timestamp server, could qualify at least insofar as it pertains to third-party financial communications that are being relayed by that node. Section 230, however, only confers immunity from state criminal law and civil action. It has no effect on federal criminal law, and there are criminal sanctions in the FDI Act. So to figure out whether a full node could be captured within the stable act, the first thing to do is read the statute and try to determine whether providing peer-to-peer network access services counts as stablecoin-related commercial activity. If not, then node operation is not captured by the statute, and the analysis ends there. If so... The next question would be A, whether node operators were covered by Section 230, whether the Stable Act uh, impliedly narrowed or repealed Section 230's application to node operators insofar as the nodes processed transactions related to stablecoins. After answering those questions, the picture would be clear. In terms of the current federal picture, we know that providing network access services is not equivalent to money transmission. That FinCEN doesn't consider node operation to be money transactions or transmission, and that for most federal crimes, accessory liability requires heightened knowledge and participation of the kind that we don't usually ascribe to node operators. This is perhaps why, to the best of my knowledge, there have been no prosecutions for running a Bitcoin full node to date, nor should there be, now or ever. And if American leadership in the crypto arena is to continue, it might be worthwhile, given how wrongheaded the Stable Act is, not on stablecoin licensure, as I think stablecoins are properly the subject of regulation, but on the blockchain node licensure, to revisit Coin Center's proposal for a blockchain node safe harbor that clearly and unambiguously accords blockchain nodes the status enjoyed by other online publishers. Section 230's most learned interpreter, Jeff Kossoff, entitled his book on the provision, quote, the 26 words that created the internet, end quote. I note for the record that Facebook, Google, Twitter, and YouTube were not founded in Europe. If America is to lead the decentralized internet, we would do well to look to Section 230 as an example of how to do internet regulation the right way. And that's the end of the article. However, guess what is, has been in the crosshairs for the last few months? In the United States, Section 230 has been in the crosshairs. I'm telling you guys, it may come down to civil disobedience. Are you going to find me a million dollars? I don't have a million dollars. What are you going to do? Throw me in jail? Are you going to martyr me? What if I don't even have possession of the node? I've, I, this, is, this is sort of one of the ideas that, that Matt O'Dell shot down from me. I was talking to him outside of BitBlock Boom. And had casually mentioned, I was, you know, and this actually came from after listening to the guy from Start Nine at Bitblock Boom. I just the gears started turning in my head. For the record, I'm going to say that I fully intend to take Matt's advice and not do the following. But there's something here. There's something here. He had a, a major problem with the architecture that I was that I was describing. At least that's what I what I'm thinking but I don't think that he had a problem with my quote-unquote guerrilla warfare uh, tactic here. What I was proposing was that Start9 can basically like look for Start... You need to look into Start9 first of all, okay? <clears throat> it's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like, you know, when I get a MyNode or Raspberry Pi, like, you know, a single board computer, and it's designed kind of to just take in... Uh, and like compiled items from GitHub that do things like the, he was saying that the boss of start nine was looking at GitHub as, as a repository of apps that is untouched. Whereas in Apple or Android, you have to get a lot of approvals to get your app into their stores, but GitHub has no such approval process. And if you want to run something, you do it at your own risk. But if you were to look, he's like, if you look at GitHub and actually just kind of filter out and just look at what what applications are available, he's like, there's tens of thousands of things that do shit that are that's useful. And he kind of looked at Start Nine as a play, as a box that you could put those apps on if you wanted to, and your download store was GitHub itself. But one of the things that he said was the fact that it can reach out and look at hard drives in other places. And I started thinking, aha, if I could connect a Bitcoin or make a Bitcoin node, and I'm not going to say full node right now, because a full node means that you need a complete copy of the blockchain, but a Bitcoin node 
and put it in places other than your own house or other than on your own property. Like go and break open the telecommunications box or not telecommunications box, but like the uh, traffic light signal box uh, in a, like on an intersection, you know, go to a small town, open up the box and harvest the communications line and splice in a Bitcoin node and hide the son of a bitch. Do it in server rooms at your, you know, at your business. No, I mean, I'm not prescribing this. I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just saying it's an idea. So take that with however big of a grain of salt you need not to like start freaking out. But what if you did? And what if that Bitcoin node could somehow or another come back to a start nine box that is also not on your property and that start nine box holds the hard drive that is the actual blockchain? Well, basically what you've done is you've separated the single board computer that, that actually processes the data and throughput for the blockchain um, away from where it it deposits all of the transactions that it has processed so that it can compile and continue to add to the tip of the chain. What if that, what if that hard drive was in your attic? What if that hard drive was somewhere else completely? What if you spent the money, a full $500, let's say you're rich as not, and you splice in and you drop a full node and a uh, hard drive into a spot that is on public property that illegally, yes, illegally taps into the communication lines and services as a full node right there. That's what I'm talking about. Now, I think what Matt had a problem with was the fact that I was talking about hooking up, you know, having one central hard drive and a shit ton of nodes. Well, now that I think about it, yeah, that doesn't work. For it to actually function as a node, you have to have a single instance of a Bitcoin full node running, and that single instance needs to be serviced by its own hard drive. That's what makes sense to me. And of course, that whole rig needs to be hooked up to the internet. Um, what if you were to do that? What if people started like dropping, because these things are so tiny. What if I were to drop a one terabyte or even a four terabyte Samsung, uh, you know, SSD and a Raspberry Pi behind us, you know, a server wall or, or just hide the living snot out of it and splice into the communication line somehow. This is one of the reasons why small blocks are important. It may not send up any flags. It depends on where you are, but it may not send up any flags because the throughput is not all that terrible. And if it goes undetected and services the Bitcoin network and it's on public property, who gets the million dollar fine if it's found? It's not, I mean, unless you're an idiot and etch your name onto the, onto the damn case in the hard drive, they can't find you. And yet somehow you're servicing the, the, the Bitcoin network because all the Bitcoin node needs is access to the internet. That's all it needs. And it can be anywhere. It doesn't have to be at your house. I'm just saying, let that thought think in because we may actually have to start committing that type and that level of, of civil disobedience in the format of guerrilla information installations. Guerrilla information, gee, it's guerrilla information installations, y'all. I'm just saying, if we really want this thing to last, we're not going to depend on the squad. We can't depend on anybody in government of any kind. They are not to be trusted period, forever, okay? Even if Bitcoin wasn't here, I would say the same thing now that I know what I know. Nobody in government in at any level, I mean starting at county and city councils, none of them can be trusted. All should be looked at as potentially the enemy, and none of them are going to ever let you do everything that you want to do. Even though everything you want to do does not in any way, shape, or form include stealing somebody's property, killing them, or committing terrorist acts, or human trafficking like apparently every government of the planet thinks that every citizen of the planet does. No, very rare, very rarely are people like that. And the people that are like that are most likely driven to be that way because of the way the government functions. The laws that they lay down the things that they enable people to do and disable people to do. The government is not your friend. 
If you believe that the government is your friend, I got bridges all over the world that I would like to sell you right now for a discount. Now, with all that said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about this? They're talking about, you know, basically this entire thing about the stable coin or the stable acts is coming up kind of around, around Ethereum because Ethereum is a, an easy target. So what I would first of all do is make sure that I don't have a damn thing to do with Ethereum and I would just support Bitcoin. Not because I don't want to get arrested, but because it's like if you need a reason to get out of Ethereum, Ethereum is going to be easy pickings for something like the Stable Act. And I agree with Preston. I don't think Stable Act is going to happen this time. But this is not going to be the only time. You have to understand that. If you sigh, if you breathe a sigh of relief because this isn't going to pass, and let's say the day comes and it doesn't pass, and you go, well, we don't have to worry about that shit again. Uh, no. You will, if you're, you should be worried about it now, even though you know this isn't going to pass. You should remain worried about it, and if you're going to be worried about it, what are you going to do about it? Just saying, these are the questions that we need to ask because now the valuation of Bitcoin has become such that it cannot be ignored. It is the elephant in the room that seeks and has the potential to wipe out everything that we've known for the last 10,000 years as far as money goes. As, as far as any form of regulated money in any way, shape, or form, Bitcoin threatens to wipe that slate clean from from at least a couple of millennia back. That doesn't bode well for these people. And they will fight and it will suck. And we are they're going to bring the fight to us. So the question still remains, what are you going to do? Answer that question for yourself. If you want to tag me on Twitter with your answer, uh, please do so. Other than that, man, I'm just going to have to see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and... And I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.